Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, My guest is Sally Jenkins. Uh, She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. So we're going to talk about her book and, uh, you know, some of her columns in the Washington Post, where she's been a featured writer for more than 20 years. So Sally, welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your uh, your career with uh, Washington Post and your writing career. What subjects have you uh, focused on that were of real uh, personal significance to you? Well, it's been such a, a broad uh, sweep of events and people that I've covered. I mean, everything from, you know, Laird Hamilton, the greatest big wave surfer in the world, to, to Wimbledon tennis tournaments to Super Bowls. And uh, kind of the, you know, the Washington Post afforded me the luxury of of a courtside seat or a ringside seat at, at all of that. And uh, the impetus behind the book, The Right Call, was basically to kind of look at all those experiences and all those people and see if there was some commonality there that might be useful to sort of clarify and lay out and deliver to other people. So what are you looking at in terms of sports, how it, uh, I don't know, improves the average person's life or societally, you know, how sports yeah, affect yeah. people's perception or what's the focus? Sure. So the focus is, I mean, the $64,000 question for all of us sitting at courtside, right, or in the bleachers is, am I watching anything that I can apply to my own life or to my own decisions? Or am I just here to be awed? You know, am I just supposed to be awed by Peyton Manning? Or is he delivering something to me uh, if I paid closer attention and tried to define what it is he actually does so very well? Um, and it's my conviction, having done this for so long for the Washington Post, that that uh, there is a, a, a lot of stuff we can take from athletes. We tend to underuse them and we tend to uh, appreciate them for all the wrong things. Uh, we over glorify them, uh, you know, for certain things and then we, we underestimate them for others, like, for instance, perseverance. Um, and so so really, I just wanted to get 
some principles down on paper that I've heard from them along the way and explain to readers, look, this is how you can use it to make better decisions in your own life. This is how you can use Tom Brady and his methods or Laird Hamilton's methods to deal with stress in your own life. Your stresses are not significantly different from those of high-level athletes. Um, we all have to make decisions under pressure, all of us. Yeah, but how do you know that um, our decisions are on the level of their decisions? Um, you know, they they also do have, you know, they do their sports over and over and over and over and over again. So whatever stresses they encounter, they probably have tons and tons of practice dealing with them in the moment. While regular folks, you know, maybe if their mother-in-law is driving them crazy, maybe that's chronic. But uh, I know it just seems like a very yeah. different environment. Like, are the lessons you think really applicable between sports people and regular folks? I do. I, and here's why. Because... Uh, as Laird Hamilton so eloquently explains in the book, your body doesn't know what's stressing it. Your body doesn't know if you're stressed because an 80-foot wave is coming at you or because your 16-year-old daughter took the car keys and left the house three hours ago and hasn't come home yet. You know, Basically, one thing we could all do better is we could all learn to practice in the environment we're going to have to make decisions in. Uh, that's something that athletes do really, really well. It's something that they they focus on and concentrate on. The rest of us tend to drift, you know, we tend to drift. A lot of times we let events decide us. And so one thing that, I mean, I can just tell you as a writer, I've been hugely influenced by the people I cover and it was very unexpected, but it, it really started to alter my own work habits, the way I go about deadline pressure, the way I go about getting ready for a big game uh, and having to write something in two hours, a thousand words in two hours on deadline. Um, and so that's what really started me thinking about it. I was like, you know, here you are uh, under your own unique form of pressure. And are you dealing with it in as organized a way as you could be? And the answer was no. And so then you start looking at at the people that you cover and going, well, what do they do that I could borrow from? Well, so what are some of those examples that you found were very useful? You know, without spoiling the book, but uh, yeah. Yeah. What, what can you tell? No, I, I love telling the stories, actually. I mean, I'll give you one example that Peyton Manning, who I spent a lot of time talking to for the book, you know, Peyton Manning gave me a, a great example. Uh, when he was quarterbacking the Indianapolis Colts, uh, their, their head coach, Tony John Dungy, uh, once a week would spray the footballs with water and uh, throw them out on the field and tell Manning and his center, Jeff Saturday, to practice with wet footballs. And And the center, Jeff Saturday, said, you know, what are we doing this for? I mean, we play in a dome, for God's sake. Uh, you know, and, and Manning just laughed and said, well, I don't know, Jeff, I mean, maybe, maybe there'll be a hole in the roof one day. Well, they get to the Super Bowl, and uh, it's in Miami, and on the morning of the game, uh, Manning wakes up and opens his hotel room window, and it's, it's a monsoon outside. There was this huge unseasonable storm in Miami. Anyone who watched that game probably remembers Prince at the halftime show. Uh, well, the producers were afraid Prince could get electrocuted in all of that rain flooding the stage. Manning and Saturday were so good at handling the ball in the rain. Uh, they they did, they went through their entire playbook. They didn't have to alter anything to deal with wet footballs. The Chicago Bears, their opponents, fumbled twice in the rain. It was the difference maker in the game. Uh, Dungy had just made a point of practicing for difficult eventualities. Uh, and a lot of the people I talked to in the book, uh, they, they, they really made an impression on me on that point. You know, if you're preparing for a presentation or you're preparing for a podcast, you're preparing for a speech, are you preparing to deal with the conditions you could be facing, right? You know, um, we memorize a couple things and go, okay, you know, that should be, that should be good enough. 
And a lot of times it's actually not good enough. Uh, you're going to deal with some nerves. You're going to deal with some unforeseen pressures. And so, so practicing in the conditions that you may be facing is a really crucial component. You know, I, I spend a lot of time working on how to write better on deadline, right? It's one thing to write something over four or five hours. It's another thing to have to write something in 45 minutes. Uh, it's a sprint versus a marathon. Okay. So say more about that. What do you experience when you have to write something quick versus uh, over four or five hours? How are the pressures different? So one of the things that happens to your body under stress, it's a classic fight or flight response, right? And this is true of anyone working at a desk, okay? This is true of chess players, right? Chess players uh, undergo enormous stress. Just because you're sitting at a desk working from the neck up doesn't mean your body isn't working strenuously and having all kinds of cascading uh, responses, right? So in the fight or flight response under stress, your body shunts blood to your large muscle groups. One of the things that means is that uh, you lose uh, blood in your finer, smaller muscle groups, namely your hands and your feet. This is why a tennis player, deeply experienced tennis player, might double fault under pressure, right? This is one of the reasons why a golfer might miss a short putt under pressure, even though they've been on the PGA Tour for a decade. Uh, same thing happens typing, right? All of a sudden, it literally gets harder to type because you've, you're, you're, you're smaller muscle groups. You've literally got less blood in your hands and feet. Once you understand that about yourself, uh, it's pretty revelatory, you know, and you can start to think about how you're going to deal with or compensate with that, with that sort of thing. But you have to identify it first and understand that's what's happening to you. Uh, you know, it's why you could transpose numbers under pressure. Uh, it's why you might misspell things under pressure. Okay. I mean, so do you prepare for writing assignments by forcing yourself to write very quickly? Or what do you do to help prepare for these eventualities? Okay. So one of the things you can do to help yourself deal with, with that eventuality, in my case, one of the things I do is I have a lot of pre-written material based on stuff that's likely to happen. It may not make it into the story, the 800 to 1,000 words, but I usually have a few paragraphs I can plug in because it's a hell of a lot easier to write 400 good words under pressure than a thousand. And so if I have material that's already written that I know that I can bend in a certain way based on the homework I've done leading up to the event, I'm a lot easier on, I feel a lot easier in my mind and in my in my head and my heart on deadline. I'm, I'm more confident. I don't feel as pressured. And so I, you know, you look for hacks and tricks to start relieving that pressure in advance. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. 
So, okay. Um, when you've done this, uh, what happens when, you know, a, a true time crunch comes, like how will you react now and what's the experience like versus before? I mean, there. look, we all just, there are days when we all just try to survive. Right. And you're, you know, you're bolting a Coca-Cola and a, and a donut, <laughs> you know, trying to find some fortunate inspiration. Um, but the truth is one of the things you learn is that what you put into your body is what comes out in the performance. And so, uh, you know, basically like, what you try to do is you you just try to you you fall back on good habits. I mean that's another thing you really really learn from from athletes and coaches is that preparation and good habit and basic discipline makes you feel better under pressure. You know, it, it's a lot easier to sort of cave when you're jittery off of uh, you know you've had a bunch of sports drinks or Mountain Dew and you, you know you're rattled already by you know your metabolism is over firing and you're rattled and now you're under deadline pressure on something. I mean you know, just don't do that to yourself, right? Like eat sensibly the day you're going to have to perform. I mean, that's a basic for all of us. You know, chess players are really interesting. There's a, what I think is a pretty interesting portion of the book that looks at chess players because again, you know, how do we relate what athletes do to what we do sitting at desks, the rest of us, right? Chess players are a pretty interesting bridge between those two concepts. Uh, they, they will all tell you, I mean, the great chess players in the world are very, very fit physically because they understand that conditioning affects judgment under pressure. You know, even Bobby Fischer back in the day before there was real, before chess players really trained physically, um, even he said that your body has to be in good shape for your mind to operate optimally. Uh, Magnus Carlsen, the, 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 you know, the reigning greatest chess player in the world, he trains with the Norwegian Olympic Training Center uh, physically. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, chess players can, can burn you know, 10,000 calories uh, at a master tournament. I mean, they... Oh, um, really? Yeah, that's intense, no, it's fast. intense thinking, it, it uses up yeah. many calories? Wow. Uh, there's, there's clinical evidence to show these guys can burn calories like marathoners, right? Again, just because you're sitting at a desk doesn't mean your body isn't working. Uh, it is. Uh, they wired chess players. One of the great fun things to watch with modern chess is uh, they put Fitbits on them, right? Or polar heart monitors. You can see like Magnus Carlsen's opponents, you can see their heart rates galloping up to about 140 under pressure. Uh, oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Clinical study has shown that um, their blood pressure can skyrocket. They all drop weight. It's called the Grandmaster Chess Diet. I mean, all great chess players lose weight at tournaments. At the tournament? Yeah, during the tournament. During in preparation for the tournament? No, no, not the tournament. During, during, during the tournament. During the tournament. During the tournament. How much weight do they lose? I mean, there's been Oh, no, there's been instances where guys have lost seven, eight, 10, 12 pounds wow. over the course of, yeah, o over the course of a, of a long chess tournament, you know, the days and days of on end of sitting hunched over the board, they're, they're working quite strenuously physically. Well, I have an example for you. There was a book I read a few years ago, uh, Josh Waitzkin. He was like, he was in that movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And um, he talked about how he tried to help himself with chess. So um, he would deliberately play with someone with like loud, annoying music, uh, you know, one guy was smoking over the board and blowing smoke in his face. He actually started to cultivate these situations where it was very difficult to focus and concentrate in order to help himself so that if that happened during a match, he wouldn't be rattled. So it sounds like it's similar to what yeah, you're talking about. You yeah. You're a good person if you haven't spoken to him yet to speak to. Yeah, no, that would be fascinating. I mean, um, I, again, I think that's partly why guys like Magnus Carlsen or, uh, you know, Hikaru Nakamura, they're attracted to speed chess. Right. A lot of them, they play gripping games of speed chess. I mean, that's a real exercise in stress management. Mm. Uh, 
they're quite aware of their metabolisms, these guys. Uh, the, again, again, chess is a really interesting subject to look at if you're trying to bridge the gap between what athletes do and, and what other types of big-time deciders do. Yeah, I'm no grandmaster, but I remember, uh, I'm just okay at chess, but I remember playing this guy who was like a speed chess champion, and he wanted to do a one-minute game, and I'm like, I, I can't, that's too chess. So we yeah. did a five-minute one, and near the end, he had like four minutes, 30 seconds. I had like two seconds on the clock. Every time I would move, he'd go, bah, bah, move quick. And I was like, <laughs> and it just made the pressure more and more. And I asked him at the end of the game, I said, it's not just that you're better than me, but you move so fast. He goes, oh, I use your time to think. I'm like, oh, thanks a lot. You know, yeah. but it was so high pressure. You like freak out, you know, and he kept cool, but it was, it was that easy. I didn't win any games. One, I managed to draw at the end. I was so happy. At least I did that. But out of like 10 games, he just clobbered me in every single one and, and he was calm, and I was like, oh. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that that tells you is that, you know, how important uh, conditioning is. And, you know, when we talk about conditioning, people think, tend to think about, you know, like working out, right, which is part of it, certainly. But, you know, conditioning is also about exposing yourself to certain kinds of stimulus that make you uncomfortable in order to become more comfortable with them. You know, you don't go from driving 60 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour every day of your life and then get into like an indie car and go 200 miles an hour, like you'll you'll absolutely freak out, right? Because your body is simply not used to the onrush of stimulus. Right. But you can acclimatize, right? And that's what great athletes do. Uh, they acclimatize themselves to these stresses um, or to these different conditions. Um, because, you know, one thing I will say is that, you know, even a Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors, the most intuitive seeming players, those are decisions that they're making. Like, when to take the shot, how to take the shot, when to let the ball go, how to get yourself on balance. These are all micro decisions, right? Uh, they're all micro judgments. And athletes learn to acclimatize themselves and by exposing themselves to, to uncomfortable stimulus. You know, the rest of us tend to seek comfort, right? You know, that tends to be the goal. You know, how can I make myself yeah, comfortable? To minimize, you know, oh, I remember, maybe this will sound sad, but uh, about 12 years ago, you know, I just wasn't doing well. I wasn't in good shape. And I sat down and I wrote to myself, you know, all the reasons why I wasn't working out. Some of them were like, you know, really, I didn't want to sweat. I didn't want to hurt myself. And this, that, the other. And I looked at the reasons and I thought, oh my goodness, how, this is crazy. But writing them out helped somehow. And I was able to get started. And I had to tell myself like, look, I've done one workout. Now I've done two. Now I've done three. And I kind of had to baby step it. But I think maybe that a little bit of that mental preparation helped. It wasn't extensive, but it was something. Yeah, I mean, I had a great conversation with a guy named Dana Cavalea, who was the performance coach for the New York Yankees for a number of years. And he's transitioned to coaching CEOs. Uh, he actually helps coach executives, um, other athletes too, but also he works with executives in how to uh, manage their stress and sort of improve their overall performance. And one thing he told me is that athletes have a pretty critical mindset they think about how they're going to feel when something's over, not how they feel while they're doing it, right? And 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 the rest of us tend to focus on, oh, I don't feel very good working out right now. Um, athletes have trained themselves mentally to push through that and to understand how good they're going to feel when it's over. And it becomes a kind of compounding interest, which is what you just described, right? They start laying bricks, right? One on top of the other. 
they're not born uh, with better habits than us. You know, these guys, these these men and women um, acquire have acquired these habits by training themselves into them. And one of the things that they learn to do is to sort of substitute instant gratification for delayed gratification, which they're much better at than the rest of us, generally speaking. Oh, very interesting. Um, any other any other stories in this book that didn't make it into the book, but you think were really revealing? Just so we don't you know give away too much of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the book, but that I'm I'm fascinated by and, and will probably revisit is uh, just the extent to which there's some of this in the book, but uh, I'm really fascinated by Kyle Shanahan, the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, who's who's lost uh, not one but two Super Bowls uh, in really painful fashion and has been knocked out of the playoffs and, and gotten profoundly unlucky. And he keeps coming back for more. And I'm I'm fascinated by the resilience of great athletes and coaches. They're they have a higher tolerance for setback than the rest of us. And I and that's another thing I think that we could we could really kind of learn from uh, that that's more important than just being awed by them. You know, Kyle Shanahan will tell you that the way he manages to survive those reversals and sort of keep coming back to his job and enjoying his work um, is by sort of being willing to die with his boots on. You know, he's going to call the play that he thinks is right, that he studied, and he's going to feel better about himself if he if he loses that way than if he compromises and makes a call that's going to please someone else, you know? And so the right call ultimately uh, is about, you know, building your own trust in yourself, according to a guy like like Kyle Shanahan. And that enables you to actually live with, with uh, reversal or even failure uh, in a much more comfortable way. And and generally go on to my observation is that those guys, those men and women, tend to win in the end. They win the big one eventually. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You mentioned in your own life that, again, you'll you'll write up text that can be used for articles in case you, you, know, you run into an urgent uh, issue or there's a new development. Did you do that before you started interviewing these people or did you do that as a result of hearing these stories and saying, okay, how can I apply it to my own life? Yeah, that's an acquired habit. It's something I learned from them. Again, that that's very much, I, I can't sort of explain how much they influence me. I mean, you know, and that's why I wanted to write the book because I was like, you know, in covering these people all these years, I've started to change what I'm doing. And so, you know, if I'm covering the week leading up to the Super Bowl, uh, there's lots of press conferences. You know, you go back and you read what everybody said and you're like, that's interesting. I wonder if that's going to matter when it's all over. So I have a whole file of that stuff, you know, that I've been keeping all week long right at my at my left hand so that when I'm typing and I go and something important happened in the game and I need to make it relevant on deadline, I have that that backup material, you know, right there ready to go. Uh, it's a much it's a it's a much better way to work than the way I worked in my early twenties, when you know I I go out to dinner the night before, probably drink a little too much, you know, eat a big breakfast that made me feel sluggish, go to the game, bolt to Coca Cola, and hope for a fortunate jolt of inspiration when it was all over. Well, that's a crazy way to work. You feel invincible. And yeah, like, ah, I got two minutes. I can, I can get it done. Yeah. But, you know, those habits tend to set. Right. And so, like, as you get, you know, like you have a choice, you, you can, as you get older, you can either start trying to figure it out and imitate the people who are doing things really, really well. You know, and one, what basically what I said was, look, if you respect the people you're covering, why wouldn't you approach your job half as seriously as they do? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, you know, I, I call it pulling rabbits out of hats. 
Yeah. If you're good at doing things last minute under a lot of pressure, and I always have been, but as I get older, you know, in my late forties now, like I just don't want to do that anymore. It's just, it's too tiring and it's not a good way to live. So I've changed my habits. I tend to plan more, even though reluctantly, um, to try to minimize that because again, it's just, it's fun when you're younger, you're like, yeah, I still pulled it out, but after a while it's tiring. You can't keep it up forever. You know, you'll blow up at some point. It seems like. Yeah. It, 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 it makes you rash and impulsive under pressure, right? You're not necessarily making the, the best call under pressure. You're not, um, so like, I mean, you know, we, it just, it, it doesn't, and, and other people don't trust it. Right. I mean, that's the, the main thing for leaders is when they see those habits, they don't trust them. Right. They may live that way themselves, but they don't necessarily want to follow somebody who, who lives like that or who's making decisions like that, you know, who, who's showing up at the last minute, you know, hoping to be a genius. Right. Never think about that. So a leader that doesn't like that in others, but yet does that themselves, they, it sounds like they don't realize that that's eroding other people's confidence in them as a leader by them doing that. Yeah. And they also don't realize that the followers will take them down. I mean, that's one thing that happened to Urban Meyer, very famous uh, instance in which this coach, essentially his entire team and staff uh, turned on him in public and he ended up, you know, getting fired, you know, within a single season. Um, followers uh, who distrust their leaders and their leaders' habits they they tend to take those those leaders down. You may think you're impregnable, but you're not. Followers can take down any leader if they don't like them. You know, huh. yeah, any stories of that? Like, can yeah, you, sure. Any I mean, more details of this one or another one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a a a, a good example. Uh, again, Urban Meyer was probably the most famous example in the NFL um, two years ago. Um, essentially, his his team started leaking stuff to the press. You know, he called he called guys losers. He would demand that they work, and then he would go out. He got caught going out to a bar after a game, didn't even fly home with the team. Uh, everyone else had to fly home, go right back to work, and he got photographed in a bar, uh, grinding with some strange girl at the bar. And his his team slowly but surely started leaking this stuff to the press to the point where, you know, the, the owner, it became unsustainable, and the owner of the team just fired him, you know, Um it's called uh it, there it, there's a good section about this in the book it's anthropologists call it a leveling mechanism and it's the it's it's the mechanism by which uh a group will take out a bad leader and pat riley the one-time coach of the miami heat describes it really really well uh, he says what happens in those situations is that everybody in the group will start subtly gearing down their effort and enrolling everybody else in their own cycle of disappointment with you Right. And so even if they're not actively fragging you, they will slowly but surely stop giving you their effort. I mean, the Washington commanders under owner Dan Snyder have been a profound example of this. I mean, the team has never been above 500 or, or they only won two playoff games in his 20 years as owner because everyone over the years just geared down their effort. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust the organization. Well, I can tell you uh, this conversation is unexpectedly much better than I thought not that I, thought I had low expectations for you, but it's uh, it exceeded never... my expectation that I didn't even know I had. So thank you I'm, so far. I'm 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 glad. You know, it's the old. You know, you have to wonder like, what are sports? What really matters about them, right? And that's at the heart of the book, and that's at the heart of this conversation. Why should we really care about about these people and what they do? So oh, that's really cool. What have you noticed between the the top leaders that you've spoken to versus the ones that are just these? Like the very best, what do they do? Be, you know, that's different from the ones that are just okay, or at that level, is it just a matter of luck and happenstance? 
No, there's real separations. They're, they're, they're distinct, visible, audible separations. You know, one great example, I mean, every great coach I've ever known, they don't criticize an underling or a player or a colleague without presenting the solution in the next breath. Okay. They're not negative. They, they, you know, they don't just say you need to play better, right? Whether it's Tony Dungy or Bill Belichick, they present the solution and the fix along with the criticism and the problem. And they are incredibly candid. Uh, they're very diagnostic about what went wrong, where the weaknesses were. They don't like yes men and they don't tolerate them. They crave honesty from their colleagues and subordinates because they understand that a diagnosis is the only way you know to get better and to fix a failure. If you uh, one of the really noticeable things I've, over the years to me has been the fact that if you hear a coach or a team bitching about the officiating after the game, you can be sure they're going to lose the next year too. The coaches who don't blame and don't bitch, but actually focus on solutions, are the ones who are going to win in the end. Uh, nice. It's it's a it's an audible difference between. Uh, guys who talk like big shot coaches and guys who really are big shot coaches. Very interesting. So uh, the better ones don't blame. And why do the blamers end up losing later on? It's just because that's the mode they're in. So any adversity, they instead of thinking about how they can overcome it or avoid it, they're just like, oh, it's external to me. It's their fault. So they're yeah. not even going to have to try. I mean, it's a fascinating point and a fascinating question. And the, the answer is that blame sets in motion a, a cover-your-ass dynamic, right? When you start apportioning blame, people start covering up or pointing at someone else, or uh, they start sort of obscuring the real cause and effect of what happened in order to protect themselves and their own backsides, right? And that screws up your analysis. So now it cascades. So you actually can't figure out what works and what doesn't work because you're not getting an honest read on the situation, right? Um, so blame enacts this cover your ass dynamic, and it's a very simple dynamic, and it's pretty basic once you notice it. But people begin to rationalize or point at a finger, point at others, and pretty soon your analysis gets really obscured. Uh, you, you cause and effect is very hard to figure out. So especially in a complex organization, when you have a bunch of people just covering their backs, it, it can really create a fog. You know, and it makes it very hard to make uh, even simple decisions. Yeah, very interesting. Um, one thing I found when I when I have a decision coming up that's really really critical is I sometimes will make alternate plans. All right, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to do this. Um, and you have to carry forth the plan sometimes simultaneously. And for some reason, I just find that like very very stressful when I have to do that, and I don't like it. But is that um, something that you've seen that high performers do? Consistently, they always got a backup or multiple backups or what's, what's that look like to you? Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely have, have contingencies. They have plan plan Bs. You have to have a plan B because almost no plan works perfectly, right? Because you're going to meet resistance. Um, and so one of the more interesting people on this subject is Bill Belichick, who won you know so many Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. And what, what Belichick says is, that first you have to be able to practice something without resistance and do it right. Because if you can't do it right without resistance, you're certainly not going to be able to execute a plan in the face of resistance. But then in the face of resistance, sometimes the competitor is simply better, or sometimes there's an unforeseen obstacle. And one of the things that the Patriots were were able to do was go to that plan B. Uh, they, they kept it pretty simple. 
uh, but they understood where some vital pressure points were. And, and there was always a Belichick game plan always consisted of if we do X, they should do Y, but if they do Z, this is how we react. Right. And so it was a question of boiling down your game plan and understanding where the pressure points were likely to be. You don't always win that way. You're going to, you're not going to win every, every situation. You're not going to win every game. But over time, your chances of being right more often than wrong really add up if you work along that method and you have your your plan Bs and your plan Cs. Um, again, it's no guarantee. There are no guarantees. I mean, one of the things about um, the title of the book, The Right Call, is that it's almost it's it's almost too simplistic because sometimes there is no right call. Sometimes things happen that you can't overcome. Um, it's more a matter of developing overall methods that just help you be more resilient in your decision making. Oh, so what are what are some of those methods? Like I guess having contingencies, future pacing, what you think may happen. Yeah. Condi- um, con- conditioning uh conditioning for the resistance you're you're more likely to meet or the circumstances you're more likely to meet, uh practicing um certain things that you know you're going to have to be able to do under pressure, uh being candid about failure. Uh, when it occurs, rather than uh, obscuring it or rationalizing it, understanding that no one succeeds all by themselves, and you you have to be every good leader starts as a good teammate. Uh, understanding your intention, I mean, intentionality is huge uh, in, in this book among the people that I talk to, uh, because so often we're unclear about why we're even doing something. Right? Like, yeah, you know, how many times have you said to yourself, Richard? Am I doing this for the money or am I doing it just to be nice? Or, you know, why am I doing it? Why did I say yes to this? Uh, Great athletes and coaches, they always know their yes and their no. Very intentional people, much more so than the rest of us, you know? So just, and clarifying mistakes of a decision is another really good habit to get into that makes it easier. I mean, um, there are some choices are irreversible and those are, those carry different weight than choices that are reversible. Um, and so you can you you have an easier time making a choice if you think well it's, if it fails it's not that big a deal you know understanding the stakes can be really important too and understanding like how how are you going to live with it if it doesn't work can I live with this choice if mm. it doesn't work right how do you how do you overcome the fear of stepping on the scale and not looking or uh, I, I'm just going to hope this works out because I, I, I just can't deal with it I don't want to think about it right now that you know those kind of reactions how do you again how do you overcome them. Sometimes the fear is intense. The, I mean, the fear is is a universal in sports. I mean, I don't know anybody uh, who isn't afraid of the miss, right? Missing the big shot. But uh, most of the people that I talk to in this book have decided somewhere along the line uh, that they would rather uh, fail aggressively or, or not even aggressively, but they would rather fail intentionally, um, for lack of a better word, uh, than by default, Um, You know, real failure is not being willing to take the shot at all. Uh, Real failure is never even analyzing your position and and trying to do it better the next time. Um, Real failure is not finding meaning in a mistake, you know, and that's what I what I admire so very much about a lot of the people in this book, whether it's Peyton Manning or whether it's, you know, Tommy Amaker, the basketball coach at Harvard, who's lost a lot of games at Harvard. It's hard to coach winning basketball at Harvard. Yet he, you know, he, he keeps on doing it. I, what I really admire about them is they they find meaning in the miss and meaning in the mistake. 
And that's, I mean, quite honestly, that is where we can best relate to them, you know, because we, we've all missed and we've all made mistakes. That's the more common experience in sports, even though we focused on the championships. Hmm. Next year during the Super Bowl, make a point of looking up how many people on the Super Bowl winning team weren't even drafted in the NFL. Look out. Okay. Look, how, every, how would they get there? Every year of, of 53, a roster of an NFL team is 53 active players. And every year, a good 23 to 25 members of the Super Bowl winning team weren't even drafted. They weren't considered good enough coming out of college. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They were just the ones that had these common characteristics, I guess, of you know future pacing, planning, uh, looking ahead at negative outcomes, and yeah. dealing with them or knowing how you're going to deal with them, et cetera. Have you ever uh, heard of backcasting? You know, you assume like, the thing that you're doing is failing or is going to fail. I'm sorry. Um, what what would have went wrong at this step? What would have went wrong at that step? Or I guess it's called a pre-mortem, but, but backcasting would be like, here's the end result. Okay, what do I need to do right before that to get that result? All right, what do I need to do right before that? And going backwards to your present condition and looking at the whole process in reverse, does that help or come up with any of these? It, it sure does because uh, coaches and athletes tend to think like engineers. Uh, they understand that you can't really uh, make something great until you've stressed it, right? Which is, which is similar to what you're talking about. They understand that that failure is almost a precondition for success. Um, and so, so yes, they you know they go into lots of situations. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, Pat Summit, who won eight championships uh, in women's basketball at the University of Tennessee, I can remember her saying to me once. I said, "What do you think, Pat? How's it going to go this season?" And she said to me, she literally said to me, well, I'll tell you, if we lose one game, we've got a really, really good chance. And if we lose two games, I guarantee you we'll win the whole championship. <laughs> because, okay. yeah, because through, you know, she knew that if they lost a couple ball games, first off, her team was going to be much, much more receptive to what she had to say uh, and to doing things right. And they were going to be looking for ways to get better at a time when other teams were maybe getting complacent, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, f uh, backcasting or, or, you know, looking at the, the worst case, I mean, Michael Phelps used to do that as an Olympic swimmer all the time. And this is in the, one of the first chapters of the book, Michael Phelps would envision what would happen if his swimsuit ripped or if his goggles filled up with water. He did a lot, he did a, a, an unbelievable amount of pre-race visualization. He would visualize how a race should go, how he wanted it to go. And then he would visualize all, all the scenarios that could go wrong and how he was going to deal with it if it went wrong. How do you do that in a healthy way, though? And is there an unhealthy way to do that? You know, like, um, well, at first glance, I would say, like, just being a, like a you know a spoiled brat, um, I don't want to look at all the negative outcomes because it's going to ruin the experience for me. Or I don't want to look at what's going to happen because I just want to enjoy it and have it fresh and new instead of considering all the things that will happen. Cause then when it happens, maybe I won't be as excited. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it, there's a funny saying, uh, I don't, I wish I knew who said it first, but uh, pessimism is really stupid because you have to live it twice. <laughs> right. And look, there's a great debate within sports about whether you learn more from winning or losing, right? If you lose too much, it becomes a habit. If you win too much, you become arrogant and complacent. I mean, so there's a fine line with, with all of this stuff. I, I, I don't mean to suggest that there's a fixed answer here uh, because, I mean, these, these things are, are flexible and competition is very protean. Um, but I do think that a certain amount of, of stress and failure is incontrovertibly uh, strengthening. 
right? I mean, that's fundamental. You stress a muscle in order to make it stronger, right? That's basic. And it's true of your mind as well. Stress is nature's way of uh, helping us rise to occasions, important occasions. We're meant to experience a certain amount of stress because it's sharpening. Too much stress, obviously, counterproductive, bad for your health. But a certain amount of stress actually triggers really, really healthy things in your body, right? And so, you know, again, comfort is not the only thing worth seeking. That That's the biggest lesson I've, I've, got, I've taken from these people who are in this book. Really, really interesting. Is the book available on Amazon and on Audible? Or what? It's available everywhere. It's uh, pub- the publication date is June sixth. It's it's available on Amazon. It's available on Audible, and it's available on any uh, book buying website. You can find it wherever you can click in searching for books. And uh, again, the title is the right call, and it's about uh, what great coaches and athletes have to teach us about performing at a higher level and making decisions in our own lives. Is there any uh, one last story that maybe you'd like to mention? If not, it's okay. But one that really like, you know, hit you between the eyes and, and changed your perspective big time. I'll leave you with with something that Pat Summit said to me, you know, early on when I was first getting to know her and, and, and working with her. And she said, you know, most people are afraid to go all in. She said, most people are afraid to win. They're af- and I, I said, why do you think that is? And she said, because people are afraid to say that's the best I can do. And most of the people in this book have learned to say, that's the best I can do. And it's it's just something very fundamental that, that I think any of us can decide. We can decide, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I do know when it's over, I'm going to hopefully be able to say, that's the best I can do. Okay. Yeah, excellent. Well, this has been a, a really great call. Surprisingly great. I didn't prepare for it, but it was, it was great all the same. <laughs> well, but, uh, I I enjoyed telling the stories. I enjoyed your questions and talking with you. So uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not using that BS. I I, want to get the book immediately and read it right away. So I'm going to, I'm going to look for it and grab it. And I encourage listeners if they're at all interested and stoked about this to do the same. And again, thank you for coming on the podcast. My my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again. Take care. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.